0: Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the February 27th, 2024 edition of Ask a Leader. We are one week away from the California Primary Election Day, March 5th. On today's roster is our last candidate, Crystal Miles, Villa Park City Council member. She's running as a Republican in the California State Senate. 37th district now other candidates either did not reply were unavailable for interview have appeared in past election cycles or are not actively campaigning today's second segment we do one better though with a heady discussion of civics taking that up will be linda bitoff retired judge and currently the chair of our youth outreach committee with the league of women voters in alameda california and a member on the alameda county office of education civics advisory committee We're going to start this show rocking and rolling in just a very short music break. Don't go away all. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Crystal Miles, Villa Park City Council member, mayor in 2021. She was re-elected to her second council term in 2022. She's now running as a Republican in the California State 37th Senate District, which includes Elisa Viejo, Anaheim, Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Laguna Beach, Laguna Niguel, Laguna Woods, Lake Forest, Mission Viejo, Mojesca, Newport Beach, North Tustin, Orange, Santa Ana, Silverado, Tustin, and Villa Park, where she lives. She owns, with her husband, a wholesale distributing business. She served as Governance Chair for the Villa Park Community Services Department, Fairmont Parent Association, and volunteered on Villa Park Little League. Earlier in her professional life, she worked on clinical research teams at Johnson & Johnson and Nichols Institute, and was a part-time middle school science teacher. Crystal Miles completed her Bachelor's of Arts in biology and some graduate work in human anatomy and microbiology at Cal State Fullerton. She comes to us today from Villa Park. We are recording this on February 26th. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Crystal Miles.
1: Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm thrilled. I appreciate the invitation
0: and the opportunity to be able to share my, my platform and my voice. Well, thank you. Well, with a very full roster, I've been saying this to every candidate, I'm asking that you all remain on topic, speak to the policies that affect us all. We're going to try to cover as much as housing, transportation, local government ethics, Orange County Board of Education expansion, elder fraud protection, and some uh, labor uh, protections, too. It's a brisk pace. We're going to try to keep it. So let's start with housing. How would you lay out, uh, would you lay out for us, what you, how do you think the state is best advised to grapple with this yawning and complicated need? What demographic, Crystal Miles, are you most concerned about?
1: Thank you. This is uh, definitely a hot topic for um, constituents in this district. There's actually two um, demographics I'm most concerned about one is our older adults, and the other one are our young adults, on the other extreme, that are graduating from college and getting their jobs and trying to um, <laughs> trying to buy a home and or at least find some place to to have a home while they, you know, put money away and save to be able to afford their first home. So um, it is a multifaceted, complex challenge, and it's going to require um, a very comprehensive, coordinated approach. So. Um, Affordable housing, I think, is one of those issues that is directly related to the high housing costs and um, population density as well. And there's some ideas I have um, by increasing housing supply, but mostly reducing the bureaucratic red tape. And I think a lot of the housing costs come from some of these regulatory agencies that are controlling the market. And if we can cut through some of those, return some local control um, we can perhaps um, come up with some innovative construction methods or materials to reduce construction costs and um, that's going to help significantly um, be able to help our, our seniors and our young adults
0: at get- least attempt to to own own a home or, or, or purchase a home as far as uh, house, available housing stock is concerned, too, I've just heard on Marketplace, uh, the NPR, American Public medium uh, platform, I heard, I think it was the end of two weeks ago, where there was a, a journalist that had compiled a, a, a zoning map of the entire country, and to the single family, that's because you and I are both here talking about housing stock available of dwelling units, that they mapped the entire countries and they, they assigned the purple color to single family detached units. And when they took purple out, there was almost nothing left. So it's sort of like there's this very, this strong default to single family detached units that could be a way of, of addressing what kind of housing stock could be unlocked if that purple uh, mapping would sort of give way to uh, other color codes. Would you agree? I, I would
1: agree with that. Um, um, I I also sit on um, the uh, Bridges at Kramer place advisory council, which is a County appointed position for one of the first homeless shelters that, um, uh, was created by um, uh, Judge Carter's decision regarding um, if, if there's a homeless individual, um, the no camping ordinance. So this was the county's first county run homeless shelter Bridges Aquarium and Place Advisory. And we deal with this issue all the time when we talk to some of the residents in these facilities um, about these single family homes and, and availability. Um, along with supportive services, because even if you are able to get people into these facilities, um, you have to be able to make sure that they can maintain maintain their
0: their um, uh, maintain their ability to stay there on their own. Thank you for that. So, on uh, it's uh, and it's we're going to keep a brisk pace, I promise everybody we have with other candidates as well. So, transportation solutions are there's plenty of evidence around us about I think I, I've been calling it a sort of dearth of leadership where we are solving transportation issues like solving congestion by adding more and you saw it and the, there's the HOV lanes the I'm sorry the yeah. the carpool lanes four were added to the Interstate 405 and there's a similar contemplation of expanding the Interstate 15 and so I I want to know what would you as a state senator offer in the way of leadership to advancing transportation solutions that reduce emissions not expand emissions because our climate change tasks before us our challenges there
1: Uh, absolutely so I think you know if you look at models like uh, New York or Chicago where they have a very well-run public transit system uh, investing in some of those um, efficient and accessible transit systems um, could could provide an affordable and sustainable way especially with the technology when we're starting to um, transition from a lot of the gas-powered or diesel-powered into some of the m- more, um, you know, friendly, eco-friendly um, uh, methods of, of, you know, hydrogen gas or um, or electric. So, um, really want to look into programs and. Um, um, sorry, my my brain is uh, kind of off today. Um, uh, uh, I'm missing the word here. It's what happens when you when you end up uh, staying up too late at night. Um, but uh, back to the public transportation, expanding those networks, improving um, the accessibility of that for individuals, and then outside of perhaps looking at the technology—that was the word I was looking for—it's um, still promoting and advocating for perhaps um, commuting uh, to te- uh, telecommuting. You know, we did a lot of that with COVID, where Um, A lot of people ended up staying home uh, so that they could work from their home and doing remote access, Uh, maybe some shared mobility services, encouraging use of carpooling or ride sharing or, um, you know, bikes, depending on uh, how close you live to where you work. And then um, also trying to, um, you know, do some sort of, of smart commuting. Like I know this is way off in the future. But uh, I believe there's some work on, um, you know, cars that drive themselves, right? So you could have mass transit with with cars that drive themselves through um, some sort of smart transportation uh, through, um, you know, driverless cars and electrification of those
0: of those cars. So the. The kind of adding more cars, if it's self-driving, and all this deals with congestion, which is a drag on, you know, the the develop the drag on the economy. If there is a longer and longer commute, and uh, it can complicate how productive the workforce is so i just that's why i'm bringing up that what transportation solutions reduce the congestion and reduce both congestion and emissions so that's what i'm i'm very interested in seeing where candidates are willing to step up and take up the leadership that's been lacking for decades we've been seeing that with that the light rail possibilities that were advanced in irvine sort of an interurban those were derailed, pardon the pun, everybody, but derailed <laughs> 20-some years ago. We've, we knew we had the memo that we needed to solve this, but it's shocking, in my estimation, to see so many more lanes added to these interstate systems, and where it's, it's solving. For me, it's solving nothing, and that's why I'm tapping everybody's leadership. For those of you who just joined us, my first guest is a two-term Villa Park City Council member and co-owner of a wholesale distributing business, Crystal Miles. She's running... As a Republican in the California state Senate election in the 37th district. So on your website, you raise the matter of accountability, quoting you here, audit spending and hold the government accountable for every dollar, end of quote. So the Orange County Board of Supervisor, Andrew Doe's, appropriating over $13 million of COVID relief funds to family without disclosing the intended recipients to his board. And the board's now deadlocked about regulating this practice. So, um, And there's been, there has been no auditing of that, any of those $13 million. So uh, what would you as a state senator do to codify some ethical requirements for disclosure in local government like this? Because there is, there is no law obligating him to do the right thing. To do what he's doing.
1: Right, right, right. And that's where you have to and this not just goes to, you know, local government, this also goes federally as as well, right? So we need to I I am one hundred percent behind creating some sort of legislation law resolution. Um I do this myself as a sitting city council member in Villa Park. If there is a matter that ethically I should recuse myself from or if I've checked with my um, city attorney and, and they say, well, you don't have to recuse yourself, I at least make it known to everyone my involvement or lack of, you know, involvement, whatever the appropriate um, situation is. Um, but yes, definitely, I, I can't comment specifically on uh, Supervisor Doe and and and, and his um Um, The claims that are are, are said for him, but whether it's Supervisor Doe, whether it's Supervisor Foley, whether it's myself, whether it's um, a senator or assembly person, everyone needs to recognize the importance of um, maintaining accountability, transparency, and also it's the public perception, right? Even if you're not doing anything, quote unquote, wrong or against the law, the the public perception is um, what's really important. So I 100% advocate and um, would support any sort of legislation to make sure that there is a, a, an ethical accountability.
0: I just want to frame though that 13 million dollars is a lot of money. That one, I'm not going mm-hmm. to. There's no both sidings. This, this he is like exemplary in the level of funds that have not been accounted for and not disclosed. 13 million dollars, and I, I think that. We all ought to be absolutely shocked that that this has been uh, uh, this has been done, and that uh, the, the response in uh, other local government areas, including that deadlock on the the board of supervisors, is itself a bit uh, concerning. So on to a Senate bill. There are several of them. I want to bring up to find out where your position is. Senate Bill 270 addresses. The proliferation of single-use plastic bags, it had a loophole that allowed a slightly heavier HDPE, not the lower, um, the thinner LDPE bag to be formulated. The former bag met the definition of reusable because it's a little thicker, but it has not, in fact, it's not been used according. It's still used as a single-use. So other states have passed legislation they've learned from this they closed this loophole in new york and new jersey your clinical science background informs you of the hazards of the omnipresence of microplastics how would you handle this senate bill 270 to minimize the plastic out in the waste stream
1: so could you please um senate bill 270, 270. is it yes um and there's so many bills could you please again um senate bill is as is promoting um to ban the single-use bag the thicker single-use bag. it's trying to sure.
0: right it's trying to take out of the definition the, the loophole that would allow the slightly thicker plastic bag because there the, the hdpe formulated plastic bag is still being used as a single-use bag so it's resulted in a, a great deal of plastic massing up in the waste stream
1: well, and as we know that this is, um, the, the, you know, plastic bags in, um, not only the waste stream in our landfills, they go to the, um, the ocean. These are, um, not things that, that are, are pretty or, and, and they're dangerous to our, our animals and sea life. Um, I think that we learn from our mistakes, or we learn as we grow. It's, it's kind of evolution, right? So, um, if if we're starting to figure out that this loophole needs to be closed, I think um, taking the corrective action to close the loophole um, and and being able to say, look, we, we didn't realize, you know, this is what happens in, in life and science and everything, right? You think you're you're putting together a comprehensive package or bill or or resolution, and then um maybe you you realize well it, it didn't quite address this appropriately enough so let's go ahead and and make some corrections and i i could i could do that full circle with um uh was it prop 47 and and Okay, that's that a separate happen.
0: one. I understand. I, I I want to stay on the topic with that okay. bill. So I wanted to talk about um then qualified for the general election ballot is the initiative to replace and its lots of bill titles are uh, complicating for sure but the uh, the standing law is what's called the private attorneys general act and it's a law which currently allows staffers to sue their employers this initiative that has it's qualified for this November 2024 general ballot it would take away workers ability to file what are class action suits Around workplace violations and wage theft, there is an entity known as Power Switch Action that the LA Times last Saturday reported on that said other mechanisms to enforce California labor laws are Insufficient on their own, including wage claims and whistleblower complaints investigated by state agencies. I'm still quoting the L.A. Times coverage: that the sheer number of labor violations dwarfs the state's capacity to enforce them. So apparently, uh, the, the the 40 million dollar recovered wage theft represents. Uh, only it's only a portion of what is estimated to be a two billion dollar worker lost wage theft. And the L A. the UCLA Labor Center researchers have found that this the claims that the initiative says it's been creating frivolous lawsuits. That the L A. Labor Center researchers found that this is is not the case. So I want to know what your position will be. It'll be on your ballot, on my ballot, everybody's in California's ballot. The the rollback of the Private Attorneys General Act.
1: That was a mouthful. Um, if, if I can get this straight, so the Private Attorneys General Act. It's is, law. Mm-hmm. It, yes, and it is. Um, it essentially allows is it, is workers. Is it also called PAGA? Yes, it, that's it, it's exactly a P-A-G-A? right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, well, you know, I I really think um, it it acts as a – I know it acts as a mechanism for enforcing labor laws in California, right, and holding the employer accountable. But as an an employer, um, I sometimes think that things like this uh, could end up being used inappropriately if there's not a lot of, um, I guess, oversight. So I'm I'm not in, in support of this. Um, I think that um, it's going to empower private individuals to act as a private attorney general, and I don't believe that that um, I don't believe that that's going to be beneficial
0: to business owners. And now I, there is another measure: the California State Senator Dodd's Elder Fraud Protection Bill Two Hundred and Seventy. I think that is Senate Bill Two Hundred and Seventy-Eight. It would clarify that victims of financial elder abuse can continue to hold institutions, that's financial institutions, accountable when those institutions should have known of the fraud but negligently assisted in the transfer of funds. When, let's say, somebody's being fished and then they're stalked and the the senior is contacted by some uh, bad actor and... Uh, the, the bank can see that that senior is withdrawing money like they've never withdrawn before, but they don't stop it. And the s- families, or if not the seniors themselves, realize what that kind of fraudulent activity was about. Are you supportive of State Senator Dodd's Elder Fraud Protection Bill 278?
1: I sit um, I am the vice chair for the senior citizens advisory council which is um, the name just recently changed to Orange County older adults advisory commission Um, and we deal with everything related to um, we don't we we call them older adults we don't call them senior citizens Um, but uh, one of the biggest things is um, financial scamming of our seniors because are so vulnerable Um, a lot of them live alone or um, you know they they um, have that digital divide right so when they get that phone call it happened to my mother in law um, Mm -hmm. there was a phone call that um, mimicked everything like her grandson my son um, everything down to that he uh, was on his way to a travel ball tournament in Arizona and his car broke down and they didn't even need his name. My mother-in-law said his name like Mason. Is that you? And and they said yeah, yes, ma, yes, grandma, it's me. And I need 500 bucks to fix it. And she was about to put her credit card in, and fortunately, my sister-in-law came down the stairs and stopped it. But um, I believe financial institutions need to um, have better uh, um, security or filters in place when they start seeing this stuff because. Um, you know, bad actors are taking advantage of our of our older adults every day, and they come up and they are smarter and smarter and come up with more creative
0: ways, very believable ways, too. So 100%, absolutely. I have many, many other measures, but I must unfortunately ask, make this the last one. The, the California Senate Bill 907 would do two things. It would enlarge the Orange County Board of Education by two seats, and then it would hold those elections during the fall general election instead of during the primary elections. What is your position on Senate Bill 907?
1: I do not agree with Senate Bill 907. I'm not understanding. Um, Our Orange County Board of Education um, actually is um, comprised of of five individuals who are doing an incredible job. there is no need to expand this. And I believe also expanding it would redistrict the current members. They are taking away the local control. Um, the voters have um, already expressed how they feel for the Orange County Board of Education. And um, I, I don't believe that expanding it is, is um, keeping it local. I think it, expanding it or trying to expand it is um, Sacramento trying to get involved in Orange County um, school politics and I think that they should stay out of
0: it. Well, and if I may, there there are two matters there I wanted to bring up in terms of you're talking about local control and representation that the representation I would uh, would suggest would be expanded by having cuz we all know more people participate in the general election than in the primary, right? Yeah. So yeah. that rep, that would expand representation if people saw that because it's a one and done on March 5th on the, those races here. The other is by expanding it, it would help address the situation. Irvine, the Irvine Unified School District, is cut in half. I didn't I missed that when I was interviewing candidates in 2022. But the maps for the Orange County Board of Education cut in half. Irvine Unified School District. So that's a, um, I think, a local control issue too. It's sort of, it's that's what they call cracking instead of packing districts when we we talk about gerrymandering and that kind of thing. So that's an, a a different issue that uh, I would s- wonder what you think about that as representation, allowing another district so it could address that keeping a a a, a sizable district, Irvine Unified School District. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is.
1: Um, Well, I have to say that competition is good. You know, competition is is how we're going to um, be more competitive. So um, as far as representation, there's nobody that's purposely left out of any election. It's, um, you know, if if people aren't involved in the election, um, I would have to say it's because they're not exercising one of their basic rights of being able to vote. So, and then as far as breaking up... um, you know, or, or or you know, Irvine having it split into two different districts. Again, I have to say that's that's part of competition. And um, if if the voters want to change that, the voters can. I don't think
0: Sacramento should get involved in it. Well, actually, it was the map was created by the board itself it's the, it was the board's uh, yes. decision. So it was not, a, it, Sacramento did not have. Well, I'm sorry we don't have more time. I have, there's so many policy questions and I love the platform that I can give my listeners to hear from the candidates. I want to thank you so much, Crystal Miles, for your time today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. My guest was Crystal Miles, Villa Park City Council member and co-owner of a local wholesale distributor. She's running as a Republican in the California State 37th Senate District. We'll be right back with Linda Bitoff and she is a retired judge and she's going to give us a civics lesson with all of the work she does with the Alameda City of and California League of Women Voters. Don't go away. back to the show. My final installment before next week's California primary, I have the pleasure of raising the earnest questions about the status of civics, civic literacy, and civic engagement. And who better to cover this is Honorable Linda Bitoff, retired judge and currently a vigorous contributor with the League of Women Voters in Alameda. The late Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, upon retirement, Founded the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute, promoting civil discourse, civic engagement, and civics education. Linda, no less so, carries comparable responsibilities as chair of Alameda's Student Advisory Committee and the Alameda County Office of Education Civics Advisory Committee. Linda, along with Sheila Durkin and Laura Kingley of the League of Women Voters, Alameda developed Verify It to address media literacy and voting knowledge and to encourage civic engagement appealing to all yet targeting ages 16 and 19. We'll talk about that in this interview. Prior to embracing full time all this heady nonprofit work, Linda Bitoff was an administrative law judge, a practicing lawyer as a government attorney, and in private practice, primarily representing working individuals and unions, and a manager of the Oakland Citizens Police Review Board. Her teaching resume includes JFK University Law School, UC Berkeley, Cabrillo College, University of Minnesota Law School, and Undergraduate College. Her what she calls (laughs) adult activities include board member of the conciliation forums of Oakland, community college candidate, member of the Oakland Planning Commission, pro bono attorney for community neighborhood groups, and a volunteer on numerous political campaigns. Linda Bitoff completed her bachelor's in political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and a Juris Doctor at the University of Minnesota. She comes to us today from Alameda, California. We are recording this on February 25th. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Linda Birhoff. Thank you so much. Well, really thank- I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today, Claudia. Well, thank you so much. First, the all-important step of registering to vote. I hit up everyone from inside this KUCI station, I just did it last Tuesday, to political rallies in downtown Los Angeles about whether people are registered. Linda, let's start with this step and how we get there from registering to getting people to be habitual voters. You know, it's really sort
2: of crazy that we are still talking about getting people to register to vote today, but it's true that a lot of people aren't registered And actually there's a lot more people that I'm really concerned about that have registered but have moved and haven't updated their voter registration. So that's a whole nother group of people that we need to worry about too. Registering to vote in California is so super easy. The Secretary of State's office has a simple fill out form for you to fill out and send in. You can do it right online. You can download it and mail it in. You can go to all kinds of places like your public library, the post office, they all have copies of the California registration form. And if you still have questions, there's all kinds of people that are willing to help you figure out how to fill it out, including the League of Women Voters
0: that I work with. And there's that one other thing about California is it doesn't get mentioned when they talk about the deadline for registration, is if you are not registered still, the day of the election, you can register and vote the same day. So I just, all of these things are a piece of the, this is the civics. So civics, how we govern and are governed, what could be a hotter topic, Linda, right? Well, it is for those of us that are sort of engaged. Um,
2: Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are not so engaged. And I understand that. So You know, it happens to be a love of mine. As a political science major in college, I have always been very civically minded. But we have to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of people are just trying to worry about how they put food on the table, juggling all their responsibilities with their families as well as their work, and don't really spend a lot of time thinking about civics and how what happens in our government affects their daily lives. And that's the challenge that we all have, is making it real to people and making them understand that if they don't register to vote, they don't vote, and they don't pay attention to what people are doing, it can come back to bite them. They don't understand. It's like I tell young women all the time. You know, you're all up in arms now about, you know, what's happening with abortion, abortion rights, the right to control your body, contraception, et cetera. Well, you know, that's all stuff that a lot of people have been working on for a whole long time. And it didn't just happen. So you need to sort of pay attention to what is going on or you're going to end up losing it.
0: So tell us, Linda, about how the League of Women Voters over 100 history now, it's so impressive, it's organized and it's created a powerful community. Talk about how students can use the credibility that the League of Women Voters has built up to support their own cause. Well, you're just starting to say that in terms of like looking at reproductive health.
2: No, that's exactly it. I think a lot of people, and especially young people, look at the League of Women Voters in two ways. One they say, well, that was, you know, I remember my grandmother or my mother was a part of the League of Women Voters. And my response to that is yeah, And we brought you a lot of the rights you have now, but now it's your turn to step up and join the league and use it to be able to advocate for positions that are really important for you and to keep fighting for your rights. That's number one. And number two, it's true that the league is a nonpartisan organization, but it is not nonpolitical. And there's a big difference between nonpartisan and nonpolitical. So we're nonpartisan in that we do not support candidates. But what we do is we provide you with the information so that you understand what the candidates stand for and what the issues are all about so that you can make informed decisions. On the political side, I say we're not political because the League has taken positions on a whole lot of different issues, fighting climate change, fighting racial discrimination, reproductive rights, gun control, all kinds of, uh, you know, gender equality, the league is on the forefront and partners with organizations to further all of those interests. So young people can get involved with us in many different ways and work with us to pursue their interests in those regards.
0: And have you experienced though some sort of two-way kinds of interactive benefits though
2: Oh yes, oh absolutely. I think you mentioned that our league here, which is actually the city of Alameda, has a student advisory committee that we started about a year ago. And we have all these delightful young high school students that have joined the league and are part of our advisory committee. And we learn so much from them every day. They are so motivated, they are so committed, and they teach us so much about not only what's important to them, but how to sort of get the message out. And it's just, I have to say, I feel so fortunate to work with these young people every day.
0: I I can only imagine, and thank goodness, there is more attention in mainstream media about the perks of intergenerational social and political and cultural enterprises. So this is where it's going. And and I'm not going to unpack any more than what you were saying in sort of broad terms about the league, because on my Ask a Leader show, every year, every election, I do have a representative speak either with their positions or with the sort of pro and cons of various propositions. So it's listeners are pretty well boned up on that. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Linda Bitoff, retired administrative law judge and former practicing attorney, now chair of the Youth Outreach Committee with the League of Women Voters in Alameda, California, and also the Alameda County Office of Education Civics Advisory Committee. Civics all the way today. So there's new trends. I want to know, have you sort of pick out what really concern you the most. We have culture wars in school curriculum. We have news deserts. We have social media that's getting Better and better with micro targeting, one on one with voters, and with that bringing along with that micro targeting deep fakes, and and we in Orange County, I'm going to say in the with the curriculum development, the Orange County Board of Education is going off on charter school and other ideological tangents. So what Alameda is focusing on could be a, a nice little. Primer for us to <laughs> see what you, what we can do with what you're targeting up there in Alameda, California. Yeah, there's
2: a lot of different things. So I think you mentioned earlier that uh, we created this really fun online game. It's free, called Verify It. And one of the things that we do on that in that game is we try to teach people how to critically look at news stories or social media posts, things that they are reading in order to figure out whether they are accurate or whether they've been generated by AI or whether they're um, untrue um, or whether someone has taken you know, a piece of information and then twisted it on its head in order to make a statement that ends up being untrue. And that's really a focus. And one of the things I'm really excited about is that one of the people who writes um, some of the uh, news articles that are in Verify It is young. And so this goes back to how much I'm learning. So she's writing all kinds of new questions using all different kinds of sources that, you know, I've never even heard of that we hope will, will help you start learning how to question what they're reading. So that's probably one of my biggest concerns is about all the misinformation there. And you talked about the news desert, and that is just such a big concern that I know that candidates are having a real hard time getting people to understand what they have done for their constituents because there isn't any local news that says that this is the way your legislators have voted on something, and this is what they're doing for you and for where you live. And it's a real quandary. So that is a real concern of ours, and the one thing we have been doing, as I said, is that we have this game where we try to teach some skills in helping people determine whether what they're reading is true or not and give them resources on how to figure it out.
0: Well, and the engagement, while we're talking about news deserts and all, I'm going to bring up a little situation here. I've been experiencing this last election cycle. We have a Southern California public radio platform LAist has a voter page and for the for a while there wasn't anything from Orange County which is again 3.2 million people and so it was a bit of a news desert then I looked they started to add a few more races and then I finally you know I asked around and then I finally got the right emails and I approached two of the LAist, the KPCC editors, and the engagement staff. And I said, look, we're a big county. Why aren't we seeing any of our races on here? Or add more and blah, blah, blah. And so this is a concern. And so with engagement, what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is, so engagement is empowering us to say to media, Be on your job. Don't fall off covering what needs to be covered. Orange County is a big darn county. Absolutely. Good for you for doing that. Are they going to start including that? Well, I checked before doing this interview, I checked to see if there's any changes. They haven't responded to my email, however, There are new races added to it. There's like a whole Orange County page now on there, and they said, we've heard you all. So it was sort of like their roundabout way of saying, you and others have been uh, importuning us. So that's engagement, empowering us to demand that people do their jobs in all the send-up to the electoral outcomes. So other, other news desert. I mean, I don't know if there's other news desert details you'd want to bring up. Oh, no,
2: there's lots of them. Out in the valley, a lot of the news organizations have folded, and so it's really difficult to get current news. In my town, Alameda, most of the newspapers have gone under, and uh, one of them recently, it's very exciting, has gone to a new format where they've become a nonprofit, and so people are trying to contribute to them so that we can continue to get local news, which is really, really important. But I wanted to speak to another part of what you just said, which is so important about civics engagement. And there's two pieces that I think are really important. One is that people think, well, I'm just one person, what can I do? Well, you're a perfect example of what you can do. Each of us has a responsibility. And that's one of my frustrations. I'm sure you've had the same problem with people complaining about everything on next door and other kinds of forums. And my response to them is, well, what are you doing about it? We're a community. To me, civics means community. You're a part of your community, and you take responsibility for it and not just ask somebody else what they're doing for it. Sure, you can criticize your public officials, but what have you done to make it better? Have you told them what is your position? Have you gone out and, you know, with Next Door, have you organized the neighborhood group? If you're really upset about a particular kind of crime, have you contacted your police department, gone to your city council? Have you talked about what your interests are and where you want them to put their emphasis? That's all of our responsibility if we are a community. That's what civics engagement is all about. That's number one. Number two is that we're always more successful also as a group. And I know that you know there's been some studies done recently that look at why a lot of young people don't vote. And they also look at what's important to them. And one of the things that comes out of those discussions is what is so important is family and relationships. Well, if you're looking at family and relationships, then a really good way to talk about it is, okay, you're worried about what's going to happen to your senior parents or your daughters or your granddaughters. But if you all sort of band together and say, we're all in this together, and then start contacting your representatives, you know, having a little protest, contacting the newspapers, writing articles, talking to your friends and family, you'll find that you have a lot more power than you do when you work together. And one more thing I wanted to say about that, because this also was part of a survey that was done by some political scientists a few years ago, is that- you know, youth complain that nobody listens to them. So, how can they hear their voice? Well, one of the reasons is that politicians listen to people who vote. So, if you're not registered and you're not voting, they're not going to listen to you. So, let's get registered, let's vote, and let's have some power.
0: Yeah, they know if you voted. I'm sure they can always run your name and they can find out whether you are a participant. That's all the so, so-
2: information.
0: Also, when you're talking about working as a group, I know when people say, well, I'm really not sure I'm a public speaker. And I always say, well, if you want to make your point, you just get one speaker and the rest of you all bank up behind the one person speaking in a name your public forum. So it's pretty impressive you just come up with that little uh, approach. So we're just solving this. <laughs> this yep. So. And then you've talked about the it and I just want to say it's, it's a tricky game to play because when I thought I had the written part right, but the written part, the quiz question, it was accompanied by a deep fake photo. So I thought, well, I, I agree that the media does not pick the candidates, but the newspaper photo, the file photo was a doctored up photo. So it was false and not true. So it's sort of like it's creating a little more traction more tension in that exercise. It's making me think harder about that and people that are really casual that's it's a pretty good little tool. Well, I want to talk about civics in the the status of civics being a part of the public school curriculum and we know that UCLA their law school has the CRT forward tracking project, which is sort of nipping at the edges of what's going on with public school curriculum. But do you have any propositions, meaning, with the little p, not not statewide ballot initiative propositions, but some propositions for how civics can be a mainstay of everybody's curriculum?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's one of the things that's really hard. So you probably know this, but a number of years ago, everybody was worried about how we needed to compete with China and North Korea in other countries, and so we put all this money into STEM and STEM education. And when we did, we forgot about basic social studies education, including civics education. So many schools teach government now. If you're lucky, it's one semester, but it's teaching government, not civics. There's not a lot of civics engagement included. Some teachers do their best to include civics engagement, and I really applaud them but they're not getting a lot of support from a lot of school districts. The second thing that makes it really difficult is that everybody teaches to the test now. Everybody is so concerned with all the statistics on how well students are doing on standardized tests that it leaves little room for creativity and other kinds of testing. So some things that I think are really important is having a civics test. That's one way if our state would mandate that you pass the civics test in order to graduate, we would really start finding schools creating curricula that were teaching civics. And when I'm talking about teaching civics, I'm talking about not just teaching government, but teaching civics engagement and what does it mean? And how do you get involved? So you mentioned that I'm I'm just a member of our Alameda County Office of Education's um, Civics Advisory Committee but i bet there's you know you you should check and see if uh, orange county has one also they if they don't have a civics advisory committee they may have a government and history advisory committee and one of the things this committee is doing under the just wonderful direction of ben sanders who was uh, appointed by our uh, wonderful county superintendent of education is that we're trying to create sort of a template for civics education that hopefully we could get incorporated into the standardized curriculum. So that's one thing that we're working on. And I should say that the County Board of Education also has a student advisory committee. So the student's input is on this also. So that's one thing, you know, that we're really working on. But as I said, it's really hard to do because, you know, teachers are really overburdened right now and
0: they're told they have to teach to the test, and you know, it's tough going. Right, and again, the vestiges of the pandemic that are, it's about getting enrollment back up where it belongs and other kinds of adjustments, so it's a tall order. There's also more discussion I'm seeing covered, Linda, where logic can also get this done. There's a, a, that STEM has replaced where logic was a part of the curriculum, and that logic could be a part of media literacy, and we're. I'm going to cover that later on, but with a person who's published a book about logic targeting young people, and it's called uh, Foot Is Not a Fish." So, th- oh. that's so. Logic is another missing piece that got bumped out with the, you know, the STEM emphasis. Understandably, STEM was a part of. Um, it's an essential goal. So
2: Claudia, that's really interesting that you say this, and I wonder if you will cover this with your next guest. But part of our curriculum desires is to also integrate statistics into the high school curriculum, because statistics is based on logic. And statistics can be used for a whole lot of different things. And it can be used to teach civics education and civics engagement. And right now, that's not a regular part of the curriculum, but could be an alternate path for those who are not going into engineering, you know, and need the, you know, the four years of math. So I will look forward to uh, hearing your next speaker.
0: It's up. It's on a couple of weeks from now. It's a two weeks, I think, after the primaries over. So I just want to know in closing, if you have any other jobs for our listeners that we haven't already covered, because there's a lot of go-tos that you've given us. Any more? Well, I just want to make, I
2: want to make a real pitch for Verify It. I want to give the URL so that people can play the game. You just go to playverifyit.org. It will bring you up to the game. It's a game that can be played individually or as a group. We'd really like to have teachers start using it as a way to get students interested in civics and news literacy and voting. It's got over a thousand questions. It's got over 50 games. You can pick what you wanna learn about. You wanna learn about news, civics, voting in your state, the US Constitution, different political or social issues. It's all there, it's all vetted. And you know what? You don't have to do any work if you're a teacher or a presenter because we provide all the links that show you uh, the basis of our finding and our decision. So I'd really like to make a pitch for using the game because I think it can be used in voter registration drives, I think it can be used in colleges, I think it can be used in high schools, I think it can be used in democracy centers, I think it can be used anywhere to really start getting people interested
0: in civics engagement. Well, I wanna thank you so much, Linda, for your time and for all your service. It's so extensive. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and it sounds like you have a wonderful program here. Oh, well, thank you. My guest was Linda Bitoff, retired administrative law judge and former practicing attorney serving now as the chair of Youth Outreach Committee with the League of Women Voters in Alameda, California, and on the Alameda County Office of Education Civics Advisory Committee. Now, finish your ballots, everyone. That's my wrap. Next week, it's the Ask a Voter episode with voices you know and don't know giving their stories. Always a treat. Reach me at cshambot@kuci.org if you want to share yours. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.